Today on the Almond Journey podcast. You know, my dad had a saying, I remember when I was a little kid, you have to farm like you're gonna farm forever or you need to get out of farming, right? Because if you're trying to do things from a short-term perspective, well, that's when you go downhill really fast. Almond grower Keith Yamamoto talks about bringing his entrepreneurial attitude to the family farm business. Welcome back to the Almond Journey podcast brought to you by the Almond Board of California. On this show, we discover how growers, handlers, and other stakeholders are making things work in their operations to drive the almond industry forward. I'm your host, Tim Hamrich, and I get to travel up and down the valley, virtually in this case, to feature the leaders who are finding innovative ways to improve their own operations, connect with their local communities, and advance this almond industry. In today's episode, we're going to head out Highway 33 between Tracy and Patterson to the town of Wesley, California. It's there that we'll hear from third-generation farmer Keith Yamamoto. Keith and his family farm a variety of crops in the area, including almonds. He says diversification in not only crops, but also markets and overall approaches has been a really important part of their business strategy over the years. We'll talk about how Keith found his role in the family operation, how they navigate the dynamics of working day to day in the family business, his vision for the future, and how he looks at risk management, growth, and value-added opportunities. First, though, Keith shares a little bit of history of the family farm business, a legacy he's proud to carry forward to the next generation. Yeah, so our farming operation's been in Wesley since uh, 1960. Uh, originally in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, all field crops. That was pretty typical for the West Side. It was fresh market frozen produce or, um, you know, forage crops. Once we got into the 90s, we started to go more mechanized because the 80s were a tough time for farming. So we were in cannery tomatoes, dry beans, almonds, walnuts, and we do some fresh market cherries. So our philosophy is to be diversified because as we can see, markets take turns and have troughs and peaks. So we're a pretty diversified operation. Yeah. And uh, did you know from an early age you wanted to kind of continue on and be third generation? No, not early age, not until I guess I uh, quote unquote matured um, and understood the opportunity that lied within our family's operation. I actually wanted to be an attorney for a long time and didn't know exactly what that entailed. Then I got into you know college and realized that I didn't want to be an attorney. Uh, and then you, you, know, you mature and understand the farming business as a young kid. I was only exposed to you know, the, driving the tractor and working in the shop and that stuff doesn't really excite me to be completely honest. But then as you get more into the business there's obviously so much more that goes into farming there's finance and management and accounting and contracting sales so you know once i was uh, exposed to that side of the business and realized that farming is it's a career that has a little bit of everything as an opportunity or job title then i realized that definitely my focus would be continuing on the legacy that my parents and grandparents had laid forth before so it took a little while for me to understand that, you know, I could do things that I like to do in farming. As you mature, you kind of understand the business, you know, overall. So, yeah, so it, not always, it was never that way. I always was very proud to be a farmer. Just didn't think career-wise that there was uh, enough opportunity in it for me to achieve, you know, some bullish goals that, you know, I had in mind for myself at a younger age. So. Yeah, no, that's great. And, and when did you notice about yourself that you were, you're a business guy? 
Oh, notice for myself. I think others, my parents noticed it for me at a young age. You know, my first outside job from the ranch was working at a um, farmer's market for my neighbors. And at eight years old, just cutting deals, you know, buy one, get one free, showing samples, you know. So others, I think, noticed it about me that at least sales was something that I could do. But I think it was, um, you know, junior, senior year in college, you started getting these upper level like business classes where it gets a little more uh, sophisticated. It's more about strategy. I think that's when it really kind of clicked that, you know, I enjoy that part. And then for me, it's, I'm lucky because I enjoy the, the actual like acumen of business, you know, just the structure of it. And then you have that like deep, more meaningful purpose of executing these things for the betterment of your family business. Right. So I'm in a very fortunate situation to be able to, you know, execute this, uh, these business items to improve upon what, you know, like I said, my parents and grandparents have worked so hard to get to, you know, and build. So, and when it comes down to that is the deepest purpose for me is how well can you play the game to improve your family situation? So it's, it's fun, you know, it took a little while to realize that, you know, you're a young kid and you don't really know what the hell's going on, but, um, it's a lot of fun to be able to do that now as an adult. Yeah. And, w- and what has that looked like? You know, what what have you brought back to the farm? Once you kind of, all right, that clicked with you. Like, okay, I can, first of all, I'm an entrepreneurial business guy. And now I can apply that to the farm. You know, w- what are kind of the big initiatives that stand out that have come as a result of that? Have you bringing that back to your family's operation? Yeah. I mean, I think just being out, I mean, ag is so similar in a lot of ways in a lot of different areas and obviously so different from, you know, one side of the street to the other, it can change. And definitely from one side of the river, north to south, it can change a lot. So I think going out into other areas outside of where we farm and seeing other techniques and strategies people use or mentalities that people have, seeing and understanding and hearing other people's mistakes that they've made and then successes that they've had. And kind of, it doesn't all correlate exactly back to where we farm. And my dad's very, uh, he makes that very clear to me, not so much anymore, but at a young age, like, that's great. That works for them. But, you know, we have to apply it into our farm in our area and our climate and our soil types, water quality type. So I think that was, that's a big one, right? It's a broadening of perspective, right? You, if you've got blinders on and all you know is what you've got, you, you can't really grow. So I think just grabbing those things, good, bad, and different, seeing from larger scale operations that have more resource about how they think about things and how they do things. Overall, that's that would be the main value. I mean, obviously there's specific things that I brought back from learning out in the commercial ag space, but um, overall that's what it is. Learn what's worked, what hasn't worked, try to apply it into our situation and you know, bring new ideas and, and maybe solutions to the ranch that we wouldn't have otherwise figured out on our own. Cool. And, and how do you maintain that? Because I'm sure you're swamped with things to do on the farm. So like, how do you intentionally like find ideas that wouldn't come naturally to you just by like head down day to day work? Uh, I mean, I'm, su- I'm super fortunate to have uh, my father in the operation, my mother, uh, my brother and my sister. Um, my brother, uh, eight years older than me, he's the operations guy. So he's the actual by definition farmer, right? He's the, you know, in our terminology, he's the guy in the dirt. He knows the dirt, how to work it, planting, harvesting. So he's that guy. And so because I'm lucky to have the whole family, pretty much, including my brother there, that is most of my value for our ranch. And it's pretty much understood in our family that that's my value. So I, I, because of everybody doing their part, more specifically, you know, the on-site family members that are running the ranch, doing the, the office work, it enables me to actually focus on those new solutions, bringing new things to the table and trying to be, ha- have some more foresight, right? Cause 
my brother, regardless if he likes it or not, he's got to look what, right in front of him and he's got to take care of what's happening right now. You know, so I think it's, again, very fortunate situation to have that family dynamic where I'm freed up to do those things. And in the same sense, my brother's freed up to do what he needs to do. And he has the faith that if there is something new cutting edge, that it will be brought to the table that we can review and see if it makes sense. You know, so it's, it's not a typical situation. I know we're not the only ones that are lucky to be in that situation, but I think that's, that's a huge advantage, you know, for us as a, as a family. And it sounds like, you know, part of your role is, is sort of to clarify a vision for where the, the farm operation is going, because you said you can have that vantage point of just like, not necessarily what needs to happen today, but where are we going? What does that vision look like for you as much as you, you want to share, I suppose, but uh, for, for where you want to take the farm operation? Well, I think a true farmer needs to do what's necessary to survive. And we are growers. We don't just grow products, but I think you have to grow your operation, right? You know, my dad had a saying, I remember when I was a little kid, you have to farm like you're going to farm forever or you need to get out of farming, right? Because if you're trying to do things from a short-term perspective or make decisions based on, well, I might not do this in five years. Well, that's when you go downhill really fast. So for us, my generation, my brother and my sister and I, we look at it, okay, how are our children going to take this next step, right? If, if they want to, they might not want to, and they might want to do something else. So the future of the farm is we have to continue to grow with scale because we need economies of scale to uh, offset these growing costs, right? Hopefully markets get better, but growing costs and for efficiencies, you know, I mean, everybody understands economies of scale. So we need to continue to grow acreage. Um, we need to continue to grow in technology. Uh, it's hard. You got to pick and choose technology, what's useful, but we, we have a lot of technology on our farm and we have to be there on the cutting edge. Like we talked about earlier about integrating new things. You got to be careful. You don't want to over-integrate and hurt your productivity. And um, with progressive and how we grow, right? We can't be too set on one crop or, you know, we can't be one dimensional. So we have to be diversified in our minds. And, and really at the end of it all, it's, it's really just the differentiation. We all have these products we can buy, but at the end, the ranch in our family, you have to have the grit to work through problems and get things done and get to harvest and get the crop in and it rains. So we got to pull tomato tubs out of the field with uh, D6. You know, you just have to have the grit to work through those issues because you can plan and you can budget and you can do all these things. But there's many times throughout the growing season, many times throughout the farmer's life cycle where it's a six week window of where you just got to put in 14 hour days and 15 hour days and you get beat up three days in a row where nothing goes your way and you have to just continue to overcome that, right? So technology is not going to give that to somebody or a farmer. A high market price doesn't give that to a farmer. I mean, that's something that is the, I would say, special sauce, that special thing that a farmer needs to have to succeed and survive, you know, to, to be able to go and hand things down to the next generation. What about, you know, are you involved a lot on the the marketing of the crops? So trying to, you know, maximize the value, of, you know, based on the quality crops that you're growing. And what does that look like? Has that changed at all? I'm curious about like you hear from the consumer side, you know, everything from organic to regenerative to, you know, low carbon, whatever the case may be. Are those premiums hitting the farm? And if so, how does a farmer like yourself go and find ways to value add that way? Right. So, yeah, sure. I mean, I don't think it's just my focus, but I think the whole family's focus is obviously to get the most value out of the effort we put in to grow these crops. As far as, you know, the value added type items like regenerative and organic, we look at them and it's just, it's, you have to 
make a very definitive decision that you're going to go one way or the other. You know, I mean, larger operations can have, you know, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. But for us, we have looked at organic. We're currently 100% conventional. Regenerative is something that seems more realistic for what we do. And there's the way we're set up because, you know, it's a big pivot to go from, you know, 100% commercial, conventional to organic. But regenerative is actually more in line with how we operate already because, you know, if it's crop rotations, cover cropping, strip tillage, drip micro irrigation, I mean, we don't have any animals eating, you know, weeds or anything on the ranch, but I'd say that that'd be closer to what we're doing now. I think as far as getting the value out of the crop, it's two things, right? It's price, but it's also security and stability. We're not people that go out and try to get the highest price. We try to look for a good relationship that we know that payment a word in your contract is good and it's a stable situation, you know, because we're trying to be in it for a hundred years or more and we're not, you know, 10 cents more a pound, a couple more dollars a ton. That's great, but it's not necessarily sustainable if there's not a good relationship and that person's not going to be in business in, you know, a year or two, right? At some point, the highest price is going to be the worst price because that guy is going to have no margins to stay alive, right? I've seen it firsthand and it's uh, not a fun situation to be in. Right. You know, a lot of people have been talking about the, the challenges currently with, you know, interest rates rising, uh, prices being lower, you know, input prices being high, you know, for you with kind of your business instincts, is it time to pull back or time to step on the gas pedal when it comes to kind of growth and expansion? Well, I mean, if you have gas, you can step on the gas pedal. I mean, it all depends on your financial situation, right? I, I think, uh, I think if you look at some of the, the factors that are leading to oversupply and then some of the factors that are leading to acreage reduction. Um, one of them, the main one being water, but the other one is cost and returns and people don't have the liquid to redevelop or develop new planting. So if you're in a liquid position and you also have water, so you're liquid in both ways, I think almonds in the long term are a good bet. If you look at a 25 year average, we just have to be honest with ourselves and say we've had a pretty damn good run. And when you have a good price for so long, we overproduce. We've done it in other, other ag commodities in the past, and it'll probably happen again with either almonds or something else. So I, I think uh, the, the counterbalance to the price of where we're at, interest rates is a, is a countering supply, water supply is countering almond supply. And um, those two things kind of lead to less liquid in the market to be able to do these developments. And then it also, it's good because then now there's actually other crops where you can make money, short-term crops, maybe with a little bit less risk. So it's good for the industry to kind of clean itself out, not just inventory, but also older plantings, you know, those 1,200, 1,400 pound an acre blocks that needs to clean itself out, right? You need to redevelop those and, you know, start over. And the areas that water's tight and it's expensive, Maybe it, make, it doesn't make sense to put almonds back in those areas. And so it's, it's, it's a perfect storm. You know, they were kind of saying at the state of the almond industry where you've got two forces, you have this perfect storm of supply and interest rates, exchange rates, you have kind of this perfect storm and we just got to ride out the storm. Like I said, if you got the gas, you can put your foot on the gas. But I mean, with all those factors, there's, there's just not a whole lot of liquid out there to do it. Uh, in a normal operation, obviously institutional guys got plenty of that, but uh, in a normal operation, there's just not a lot to reinvest. So you got to be creative and try to get yourself in a position. So when there is a rally in the market or, or uh, there's other crops that you can grow, you know, you can take advantage of those and, you know, wait for everything to kind of stabilize, which sounds like it's going to be a little while. Yeah. Well, for you, when it comes to, you know, your farm operation over the next 
six months to a year, you know, what's top of mind for you? What are you looking at as far as trying to address immediate challenges and, and position yourself for the long term? Yeah, I mean, it's like three, three major things, um, you know, production function, right? So uh, land, so the land in, as far as real estate goes and the land as far as soil health and the soil goes, uh, water, the supply of it, the price of it and the quality of it. Um, and then, you know, human resource, same thing. The stability of that retaining our uh, highly valued people, making sure that they have the resource that they need in order to perform. And we give them an opportunity to uh, be happy with what they're doing so we, they can have more output. But those three things is kind of what we have to focus on, right? What's the, what are the things we have to put into the soil to uh, maximize that resource? How do we manage our water? Like it doesn't matter necessarily where you're at in the state, you have some type of water constraint it might not necessarily be overall supply, but it might be when you can get it, how much you can get at a time, and then the quality of it. So what we're focusing on on our end is the water quality. We kind of roughly know worst case scenario, what it looks like coming in. Okay, what can we do to the water to improve it so it can be more utilized in the plant, right? Or taken up by the plant, less um, neutral pH, right? Can we, how do we get the bicarbonates down? You know, what can we add to it or take away from it or blending it with another source of water? Uh, that's a huge one. I mean, that's really the the most important thing that we can manage in farming at the moment. You know, soil and land just means nothing without it. Water is definitely the, our number one focus. The human resource thing is more of a day-to-day concern that we deal with. So I think maybe um, human resource comes up more in conversation, but uh, water is definitely the thing that we focus on. Spend a lot of time and resource in making sure that we have what we need and we can get it to its most usable form, the highest quality we can create with what we're given. And um, we make sure that we manage it tightly so we can get us to harvest, post-harvest and, uh, you know, keep our trees going. Because, you know, at some prices you don't make any money on almonds, but I think there's more risk if you, if you malnourish them, either through hydration or through nutrition. Um, I think you can malnourish them to a point where you hurt yourself more right because you still got to farm them so cutting costs to a certain extent there's a marginal return to that where you're, you're just shooting yourself in the foot so you're actually losing more money than you should be i know it's so so that's it right there you know for me land water and uh, human resource and the rest of it is tough you know finance the markets we can't control the the market so those are the three things on our ranch that we think we can control that makes a lot of sense and I, there's a few interesting things there that that stand out to me. One thing is the way you framed the water conversation, I think made me realize that we don't probably talk about water in terms of stewardship enough. We often talk about water efficiency. We're always talking about water efficiency, but like stewardship. So when it comes to like, how do we improve the quality? How do we improve kind of the, the resource that is water? The way we talk about soil, uh, we need to be talking about water the same way that you framed it really well. And then the other thing is, um, and this is maybe a little bit along the lines of HR, but not really. I'm, I'm curious with, with you and with your parents and with your brother and the other key players on the, on the farm, how do you guys communicate and make sure you're on the same page? Because from what I understand, like the cliche is like all business problems are communication problems or most or whatever the case may be. How do you avoid those communication problems? And what does that look like from like a systematic way of communicating? Uh, I think number one is chain of command. So I've seen other operations. No one knows who the real boss is. It's very clear in our organization that you know, my dad's a clear leader. And so I'm very fortunate for that. And then uh, it's also very clear about whose job is what. Right, so who's responsible for what within the family, and and obviously within the within the rest of the team that's not family, and from there with the chain of command, then you understand what needs to get done 
communication wise in order to get things done. Right. And, you know, people listen, will listen to my brother and I have a conversation and they feel like it's an argument when it's really just as, as direct and raw of a communication form as you can get. Cause there's no emotion involved. It's just, we're not worried about each other's feeling. We are just communicating to its truest form so we can get off the phone and get on with our day. Right. So I think it's, um, the, the structure of the business of not understanding who's responsible, who the clear leader is, who the clear leaders are of the different divisions, and then being able to have a candid and honest dialogue as you work through things, right? And there's obviously a lot of other techniques, but I mean, it depends on what we're doing, but some of it's email, some of it's phone call, some of it's text message, but the actual, what I feel like is the, the most important communication is those day-to-day, minute-by-minute conversations of those decisions you have to make for what you're going to do either this afternoon or tomorrow morning, sprays, irrigations, human resource issues. You have a disgruntled guy or, you know, we need to give some more overtime because the guys need, you know, they need a little more income. Those types of conversations. It's just very important that you have a hundred percent honesty and trust with who you're working with. And if you don't, then you really need to take a step back and look at your management team, if it's family or not, and figure out how to get there. Because you know, big organizations, you can see it. There's a lot of PR built into a conversation when it should be just an objective discussion of X, Y, and Z equals, you know, W. Should we do this or should we do this? Your idea is better. We're going to do this. Good job. All right. Bye. Be very direct. And if someone's feelings are hurt, then be very direct about resolving that as well. Right. So anyway, that's something that I'm, I'm, again, very lucky to have in my family, a very direct uh, dialogue and clear chain of command. I think that's what it comes down to. Love it. Radical candor. Well, thank you for sharing those experiences with us on the podcast here. Um, anything else that you'd like to leave the audience of, of almond growers and people in the almond industry, uh, one last message or final punctuation on the episode. This is your, this is your chance. Yeah. I mean, just like the main point is, uh, if you're in the almond industry and you're, you've got uh, a problem, like we talked about, you just got to look at yourself and be gritty, you know, be gritty and work through it. And it could be worse. <laughs> but we get a farmer in California, the weather's great farming almonds. So it's all good. It's all good. Well, we'll wrap up today's episode on that note. Thank you very much to Keith Yamamoto for taking time to be on today's episode. We're able to cover quite a range of topics here on this episode. And I really appreciated Keith's openness and transparency on all of them. We here at the Almond Journey podcast believe everyone in the almond industry has a story of their own of how they're making things work on their farms or in their jobs. Hearing the voices of industry leaders, people like Keith Yamamoto, may spark a connection or an idea that you can use in your own journey. And that's why we want to feature these stories of innovation, resilience, and community here on this podcast. I hope you'll come along for the ride by subscribing to the show on your podcast platform of choice. And please pass it along to someone else in the industry so we can all share in this almond journey together.